All right, welcome everyone to the Zojo Talk podcast. I am Paul Lefebvre, the Zojo Developer Evangelist, and I am extremely pleased to have as my guest this time, Jeff Perlman, founder and CEO of Zojo. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. And what on earth could we talk about today? Hmm, <laughs> how about we talk about the great new Zojo release that just came out. Uh, this is Zojo 2015 Release 3, very recently made available. And it's got some cool new features, and Jeff and I are going to talk about some of these features uh, so that you can get a quick handle on them. Indeed. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is one of the longest release cycles we've had in quite a while. Um, yeah, yeah, we were working on this before XDC uh, so that we had an alpha to show to the people at the conference. And Yeah, so that was back in April. Holy cow. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're finally here. It's finally released, so that's, uh, that's good. So one of the things that's new in 2015 Release 3 is that we now have the container control for iOS, which is really great. Yeah, this will be good. We've had container control for desktop and web for years and years now, and it's something that pretty much everyone's going to use on their apps. And you use container control to make uh, combine a bunch of controls into something that essentially becomes a reusable control. And then you can use it in different places on your app very easily. So we're really excited to have that available now for iOS so that our iOS developers can now make more sophisticated user interfaces. Yeah, you know, the thing about the container control is that it's actually probably more useful for iOS than it is for even the desktop or the web because when you're building iOS apps, you're frequently going to be building an app that's for uh, both the iPhone and the iPad. And so you may have different layouts, but you'll, then you'll have parts of those layouts that you want to share between the two. And, and uh, that's where container controls really shine. So uh, I think they're going to be really useful for iOS. Yeah, that's a very good point because you often, uh, with a phone, you're going to have you know a single view or a single screen. But with an iPad, you might split it or you might want to completely lay it out differently. But you're going to have portions of that that might be exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. And with a container control, you can just design that and then reuse it in both places and you don't have to have any duplication. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about the container control is that uh, mo most of the features that we build for... Uh, Zojo are things that you know pe customers have asked for, or you know we've thought about and planned for a long time. But the container control actually started as just an idea in one of our engineers' heads, and he worked on it over the weekend. Uh, this was back when it was just for the desktop, the initial know? one, right? The initial one, yeah. And he came in and said, "Hey, here's a way to kind of embed a layout in a layout," and we came up with the name container control. So that's sort of the some of the history of of where the container, it was just an inspiration that one of our engineers had one weekend. Well, speaking from experience, I can say that it is an incredibly useful control. And when I was doing consulting, I, was, I didn't have a single project that, that didn't use it. I always was using that. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll use them more and more and more. So another thing we have in R3 is uh, the new uniform type identifier editor which I think a lot of people don't know what those even are. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's not a commonly used thing. Uh, the Essentially, you might remember it by its other name. It's the file type set editor. And uh, that's been in, in Zojo forever, of course. And it allows you to specify the files that your app uses. So that's either files that your app's going to open up and be able to work with or files that your app uh, creates. And, and they could be uh, files that are specific to your app. They're owned by your app. And the previous file type set editor was designed a while ago before a lot of the newer operating system changes that came into play, uh, particularly on OS X. So the new, the new thing, which is now called the uniform uh, type, if I get that name right correctly, uh, uniform type identifier editor, because UTIs, as they're called, uh, uniform <laughs> type identifiers, which... Uh, that's, a, that's like kind of doesn't roll off the tongue too well. But no. the, <laughs> the new editor is much better. It has everything kind of laid out, all the different fields you need to specify the icon, the display name, the description, the extensions, whether this is an imported type, uh, meaning one that your file can open, or an exported type, meaning one that your file creates, uh, that sort of thing. So you can specify all that in uh, an editor that's just a lot friendlier and better designed than the older one uh, that's just been around for a long time. And so we're pretty pleased that people are going to be able to use this to, to better create and design the, the, the specify, I should say, to better specify the types of files their apps work with. 
Yeah, you know, and it used to be that OS X and Windows and Linux were very different with how they handled uh, identifying file types. But it seems like over the years they've become more alike. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't have a lot of back history with OS X, but I, I remember they ha- they used to have this concept of creator codes and file types or something. Yeah, there's like a file that. type code. A four, a four. You had a creator code, which was essentially uh, a four letter code that identified your application, and then you had a type code, which was a four letter identifier. You know, and and that might be different types that your application has. But for example. If your application had uh, created text files, then you'd give a file type, the type text, T-E-X-T. And other applications might use that as well, but there was no guarantee that those meant the same thing. And, and, um, and this was metadata that was stored, you know, with the file. It was, right. Yeah. So um, it was very specific to Mac, and uh, now we're in a position where they're, they're – it's you know it says we call it a uniform type identifier and that's actually a really good name because now it seems like file identifiers are more uniform now. Right. Yeah. They're essentially that older proprietary Mac standard, which you know I have read reviews of all the OS ten versions, and I remember the these were the Ars Technica one. The the reviewer there, John Syracuse, would lament that OS ten was slowly dropping some of those things you just described, Jeff. And he was like, why are they dropping them? They were the best idea ever. And, well, they got dropped for the sake of compatibility so that OS X and Windows play nicer together, I think. And, but, yeah, and that's not the first thing they've dropped for that reason. Uh, oh, what was it? Oh, it was an executable type. That's what it was. You know, now we have bundles on OS X, right, where an application is really just a directory. And there was another kind of executable format uh, originally for OS X and for OS nine. Uh, and some of the engineers who work here who, you know, came from that period of time said, oh, that, the old type, the old way of doing executable formats is so much better. Uh, and, and I said, but it's pointless because Apple is doing away with that. <laughs> so there's no really point in arguing about it. Uh, whether it's better or not, it's going away. So, right, yeah, it's moot. I mean, if Apple decides it's gone, uh, you just got to go with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I think bundles are, uh, you know, long term, they've been much better. Um, and uh, even, you know, Windows has this concept of it's not exactly the same, but it's a similar concept. So right. uh, I think it's a good thing. So let's see, what else do we have? So... Um, we have a new feature in the IDE um, that's available under the file menu, uh, collect project items. And it's funny, uh, Norman and I were having a laugh about this the other day because I feel like this feature is really mostly for us here at Zojo. Um, uh, what it basically does is, you know, projects will often have uh, other files associated with them. Pictures is a really good example. If you're using a picture in your application, you drag it into the project, but that doesn't copy the picture into the project. It just puts in a reference to the picture on disk. And what happens is uh, people send us projects, and those projects, they, they forget that their project you know, is utilizing all these other files. And then we, they send it to us either you know, as part of a feedback uh, case or they, they're submitting an issue to tech support and we get the project and we can't open it because it's missing all these extra files. So what collect project items does is it, it uh, well, just what it says it does. It collects together all your stuff. Uh, so it basically, it basically copies all those external items, pictures, classes, whatever that you are using externally to the project uh, to the location where the project is. And then it updates the project file. Right. So you get everything in one folder you can easily zip up and then send off to someone, be it us or a friend of yours if you're sharing it or whomever. Right. But you don't, you don't have to yeah. scour your hard disk looking for all these things. Right. Or or send it to them, you know, and then have them contact you later and say, hey, I didn't get that logo or that class was missing or whatever. Yeah. So this collects it all together. But I think what people mostly will use this for is for submitting things to us. Um, uh, maybe they'll use it, you know, for their friends too, but I think it'll get used most often for us. And <laughs> it's actually, you know, but it helps the user too because it's no good for them if they're waiting for feedback from us and then the feedback they get is, hey, you, you forgot to include that picture. Oh, right. shoot, you know. Yeah, I, I myself have done it plenty of times where I create a feedback case, throw in the project, and then, oops, I forgot to include the pictures that uh, 
were, you know, I just had linked them and they were somewhere else in my drive and I, you know, spaced it or didn't think about it. I imagine this will also be useful for even people that uh, are using, uh, you know, source control or something like that. So they can kind of pull all, you know, if they, they switching from not using source control to source control, they can pull everything into a single directory structure and then get that into their source repository more easily. That's a really good point. Yeah. Now, if you're going from uh, no version control to version control, that's absolutely something you'll want to use. That that's a good point. Um, so what else? So we got the iOS label now supports uh, a different kind of line wrapping. Yeah, this is uh, iOS label. Of course, we've had since the first version of iOS. It, you know, it's one of the simpler UI controls. It just you know some simple text you can put on there. But I mean, it's now- probably well, I think it's one of the most popular controls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you always need to show something, I suppose. The uh, but uh, we now exposed a lot of the different ways that your text can wrap on these things. So you can do things like have the text uh, break on just words. You can have text get truncated at the begin with the ellipses or truncated at the end with ellipses or truncated in the middle. There's a variety of different settings. Uh, I forget how many, probably like six or so. But uh, obviously, of course, they're all going to be uh, on the doc page. So you just go to uh, the Dev Center slash, uh, well, I don't know, slash, but search for iOS label and uh, and, yeah. and you'll get a, a list of the enumerations that you can use there to set how that displays. So give you a little bit more flexibility in how your da- your text is displayed. Yeah. And now we have uh, code bookmarks, which is something we, we had in the past, although I guess this is a little different implementation of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, code bookmarks. Uh, there was a bookmarking feature in the in, I guess, Real Studio, maybe even Real yeah. Basic, back many, many years. It wasn't a feature I personally used really myself, but we had a, a lot of customers that really missed that it didn't make the uh, like the transition to Zojo. So uh, we did a little digging, see what we'd come up with. And essentially, we were able to piggyback on top of the, uh, uh, the breakpoint feature. And bookmarking kind of works in conjunction with that. So now that little gutter on the left-hand side of the code editor that normally you can tap, you know, click there to set dots for breakpoints, you can now do a, another type of click to set a bookmark. And it shows up as a different icon. And you can, of course, also bookmark lines that have breakpoints, so you're not restricted in any way. But you now have the ability to, to essentially bookmark right at a line of code. And then uh, you can go to the project menu and just click uh, a menu item there to show all your bookmarks in your code. And they'll show up in the panels at the bottom of Zojo. And then you can just quickly jump to various parts of code. So this sort of stuff people find very handy when they're working on a bunch of different things in their project uh, that are all related. And they can say, you know, I just need to set bookmarks here, here, and here because I'm jumping between these areas all the time. Yeah, you know, when we when we, uh, when we we redid the IDE and we got rid of that feature, um, we suddenly heard from a lot of people saying, oh, I really use that feature. And it's interesting because prior to that, we didn't get a lot of feedback about that feature. So we thought people weren't really using it that much. And it's, I think it's one of those things where it works and it works so well and it's so simple, you just don't think to talk about it, you know? So you don't miss it until it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everything. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we'll be seeing that feature, you know, come back more in the future. Um, certainly, Bookmarking your code is the most useful uh, aspect of it. So it's, it's definitely good that we've brought that part back. And uh, now we've got support for web drag and drop, which is really great. Drag and drop for the web framework. Um, you know, that's something people have been asking about since we introduced. In fact, I think, I think the moment we introduced the web framework, people start saying, so does it support drag and drop? Um, so it's good that we have that. I don't think you can drag files in from the desktop yet, though. No, not not in this first version, not yet. Yeah. Right now, it's for dragging controls uh, kind of amongst themselves in the web app. So yeah, inside of a page rather than dragging to and from the page. But we'll get to that eventually. Um, yeah, this is like the first step. But yeah, it's, it, it allows you to build web apps that are you know a little more interactive than in the past, that, uh, and people like to see that sort of thing. So that'll be great. Yeah, and you know, um, I really like the implementation uh, of the web drag and drop because what you basically do is you say that something's draggable, and ahead of time you say uh, what controls can receive a drop of that kind, right? Uh, so rather than dealing with drag events, you know, because because with with a with a web app, of course, there could be thousands of miles between the client and the server. 
right? So you can't have events just firing rapidly. You know, that's just not going to work. So I, I really like how we've come up with the API for web drag and drop. And uh, I'd like to think that we'll have an API like that in the future for the desktop as well, because it just, it's, it's, it simplifies it. You set everything up in advance, uh, makes it very, very clear how to do it. I, th- I think it's a much better API than what we have today for the desktop. So, Well, it certainly is very clean. There are a couple examples included in your Zojo download. So if you grab release three, you can go to the web folder and open up the drag and drop examples. If you want to play around with that. So at XDC last April, um, one of the things we announced that I announced during the keynote was that we were going to be supporting uh, Raspberry Pi. And uh, for those of you that say, how does a development tool support a Pi? Well, this isn't the kind you eat. <laughs> uh, Raspberry Pi is a tiny little um, computer. It's an ARM-based computer, so it's got the same processor as the iPhone and a lot of mobile devices have. Um, it's They come in different sizes, but like the one I have is uh, the size of a couple of decks of cards. Uh, very, very small and very inexpensive. And, uh, you know, I came up with the idea for supporting this because I said we already support ARM for iOS. Right. And we already support Linux. Raspberry Pi runs uh, Linux. So we already support Linux. So how much trouble could it be to support Linux on ARM? You know, we've already got both. We just got to put them together. And that's turned out to be a lot more trouble than we actually originally thought it was going to be. Uh, but it's really worth it because there's all kinds of new applications, you know, that you can do for Raspberry Pi that that just wouldn't have been possible otherwise or would have been maybe too expensive to do with other kinds of hardware. Yeah, definitely. And, and it certainly was a, a surprising amount of work to get this going, but it, yeah. it's amazing how much in demand this thing is. I mean, I have to be honest, at the beginning of the year, I wasn't all that familiar with what a, even a Raspberry Pi was. I'm not really much of an electrical uh, engineer type that would... Uh, you know, probably play around with this sort of thing. When you announced this at XDC, there was thunderous applause from the people that were so excited to hear about this feature. They already had Raspberry Pis and they already were building things with it, but they wanted to be able to use Zojo to build things with it because that would be so much easier than, you know, Python or whatever the the awful command line tools you are having to use with, uh, with Raspberry Pi. So, yeah, I've been playing with Raspberry Pi a lot the last few months, and this is one fun little gadget, i got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's really kind of amazing to think of a computer that size, you know, and, and, and it's so affordable. Um, but what I was surprised, I mean, like you, you know, you, we started talking about it in the community, and suddenly you start hearing from all these Zojo users saying, you know, I've been using Raspberry Pi, but I haven't obviously been able to use Zojo. I've had to program in Python or something else. Well, when I announced this at um, at the conference last April, um, I was really surprised at the reaction I, because I hadn't talked to too many people that had used Raspberry Pi. So I, I didn't realize how many of our users were already using it. And when I had people coming up to me after the keynote saying that, you know, they already had a lot of ideas for how they were going to start utilizing it now that they'd be able to support it from Zojo, which is really, really great. So I'm I'm really happy to hear that. I really can't wait to see all the kinds of different things people do with it. I know I talked to one of our users who's at um, XDC who has th- several thousand um, Mac minis deployed at customer sites. And now he says he'll be able to instead just deploy a Raspberry Pi, which is smaller, has less uh, energy requirements, has costs less, etc. cetera. Uh, a Mac mini was sort of overkill. Uh, for the application he was using it for, but uh, that was what he had. That was the option he you know was available to him. And now with Raspberry Pi, it's going to be much more, uh, a much better fit. Right. And for people that aren't familiar with the Raspberry Pi, like Jeff said, it's it's a computer that's the size of about two decks of cards. Yeah. And you buy it as a plain circuit board. It's like thirty five dollars. Generally, you want to buy it with a kit that uh, comes with a casing and the power supply and a Wi Fi adapter and stuff like that. And then you're probably pushing. $70 maybe, yeah. it's still very inexpensive. And then you yeah. take this little gadget, you plug it into a display. It comes with an HDMI uh, connector, so you can just plug it into anything that accepts HDMI. I used our TV set the first time I tried it. And then you can plug in a USB keyboard and mouse. It's got four USB ports. And then you boot the thing off an SD card, 
and that's it. It's a computer. It's a Linux computer. It comes up. It has a desktop. Has a command line. You can use it as a Linux computer. Uh, it's not, you know, this isn't the world's speediest computer. It's an ARM CPU. It is quad core, uh, but it still is amazing for its size. What it really can do. I think it has a gigabyte of RAM. Uh, it's pretty pretty slick, and you and you know you can use Zojo to make apps for it. And one thing. We have a little bonus because one thing that, uh, Jeff, you announced something at XDC for what we're going to support, but we've added to that a little bit. Yeah. So we originally, our plan was to support just console apps for Raspberry Pi, but we're actually supporting both console and desktop apps, which is really interesting. Yeah. It came up during beta that people were really, really wanting desktop apps as well. And uh, so, you know, as Jeff says, you know, he says to the engineering meetings, what would it take to do this? Yeah, yeah and, that's a frequent thing. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it was looked into and, you know, and it was turned out it, that actually wasn't as big a leap as the initial work, I suppose, to get to get things running. So, yeah, yeah. It was one of those things where, OK, if we can do it easily, then we'll do it for this release. And if we can't, well, we'll look into it for a future release. And it turned out to not be not be that difficult. Um, g- going back a step uh, with the Raspberry Pi I bought, which is the uh, I bought a kit, Kana kit, it's called. I think it was seventy nine dollars. Um, the first time I, I plugged it in because it's got HDMI to my TV, like you did, and it, when you boot it up, there's a, a setup screen where you, you know, pick your options and such. And it's actually pretty straightforward. Once I did that, uh, then I was able to set it up so I could connect right from my Mac. And so what I do is I just uh, use the terminal to get to uh, my Raspberry Pi wirelessly. And I've installed a VNC server. And if you've never done that, it's really not that hard. In fact, the folks at Conakit have instructions on how to do it. Uh, So you can install, I think it's called Tiger VNC server on there. And once you've got that going, you can just use the screen sharing. I don't know how you do it on Windows. I'm sure there's a way, but on the Mac, there's a screen sharing built in and you can just use the screen sharing to get to your Raspberry Pi. So for me, I don't have a separate keyboard mouse display. I basically just use the keyboard mouse and screen I have on my Mac um, to control my Raspberry Pi that's sitting a foot away on my desk. Yeah, same here. I have mine tucked away here behind my display, but it's not connected to anything. It's just sitting there plugged into power with this Wi-Fi adapter. And I just essentially remote into it from my Mac. Yeah, we, we have a user in Australia that builds uh, robots as part of his research, and he brought one to he brought one to XTC um, a couple of years ago, right? Uh, and he was driving it around the room, uh, but at that time the software that was written in Zojo was running on a PC, and he was sending signals to the robot telling it what to do. And I remember him telling me that once you guys support Raspberry Pi, uh, I could you know, I could actually have code running inside the robot itself. Yeah, uh, exactly. in Zojo. So he was really happy to hear that we're supporting Raspberry Pi now. Well, and like you said, it's going to be exciting to see the type of things people use Zojo to work with Raspberry Pi. I mean, people in general already use Raspberry Pi for the amazing things that you would never think of. But uh, having Zojo work on that will allow them to program it a lot more easily than they ever could in the past. And, and just, and to get people started, we of course have a raspberry Pi section on the dev center. That's going to show you, give you an overview of what raspberry Pi is. Uh, we've got some example projects on there. We're also including an open source, uh, Zojo module that allow you to directly access the input output, the GPIO port on the Pi. So you can connect your own circuit boards to it, to program it and do stuff. And we have a couple tutorials for that. So you can head on over to Dev Center and Zojo and uh, grab all that, watch the videos, and and uh, and order up your pie if you haven't already done so, so you can uh, play around with it. Oh, and we should uh, point out that this is Raspberry Pi 2, not the original Raspberry Pi. Uh, I believe they've stopped making the original Raspberry Pi, which was really underpowered compared to Raspberry Pi 2. And yes. and there's, you know, I, I think I heard somewhere they're making about 20,000 Raspberry Pi 2s a day. Oh, so there's... Wow. Yeah, so there's already several million of them out there. Yeah, the um, Pi 2. Yeah, if you and if you are getting a Pi, you know, get a Pi 2. That's the good one, yeah. the quad-core one with the Giga RAM and all that good stuff. The other one was innovative in its time, but was pretty pretty underpowered. Yeah, and there, uh, up until Zojo, there really haven't been any RAD tools at all for Raspberry Pi. So I'm also sort of interested to see how the Raspberry Pi community, because like with anything, there's a community around Raspberry Pi. So I'm really kind of interested to see how the Raspberry Pi community 
reacts to, to Zojo. So that, that should be pretty cool. So another big thing we're doing in this release, arguably the biggest thing, um, saving the best for last, is uh, support for 64-bit. Yeah, right, 64-bit. Well, I like to tell I, when I was talking to some folks in the Netherlands at the conference last month, I said, yeah, we've been working on 64-bit for years and years. This has been a tremendous undertaking. I don't even know the number of man hours, thousands of man hours. And it all comes down to this. And I showed them the little field in the build settings where you select 64-bit. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 there's so much hidden behind a, a, a pop-up menu. Um, you know, with a lot of development tools, if you're writing in C++ or something like that, you're often not using a framework and you don't have to worry about that part of it. Um, it's just your code. So it's, it's not difficult for a development tool to update you know, if they don't have a framework. Uh, to support 64-bit, but we have thousands and thousands and thousands of lines, tens and tens of thousands of lines of code, heck, hundreds of thousands in our frameworks across OS 10, Windows, Linux, and the web, and iOS. Um, and updating all of that code that, you know, forever has assumed 32-bit uh, is a huge undertaking. I mean, there's, then there's the compiler, too. I don't want to, uh, you know overlook that because that was a huge job as well. Um, but yeah, the frameworks were huge. So this has taken a long time and there are a couple of benefits to this. Well, first of all, the operating systems are becoming more and more dependent on, they're, they're making the assumption you're, you're 64 bit. Um, it started with Linux where we have users running applications on Linux servers, especially in government um, where the servers are 64-bit and there's no 32-bit compatibility library, so they have to be 64-bit. And we've had users who have told us they can't deploy on those because they don't have 64-bit, so that's a big deal. Uh, and, uh, and of course, OS 10 has been 64-bit for quite a while. Yeah, uh, Windows, you've got 32-bit and 64-bit versions of it. Uh, but for those of you that have heard the term 64-bit and aren't entirely certain what it means. Um, the biggest thing about 64-bit is that you can address a lot more memory. Uh, a 32-bit application is limited to addressing 2 gigabytes or 4 gigabytes, depending on some OS set settings uh, and what OS you're using. And you'd think, that seems like a lot of memory. I mean, <laughs> you know, my first computer had 16K of RAM. Um, and I remember when we bought another 16K, it was $150 for another 16K. And I thought 32K of RAM was a lot. And, and it's amazing to think now that, you know, two gigabytes is not enough memory sometimes. Uh, so 64 bit means that, that, you know, for those that don't know this, it means the memory addresses are 64 bits long rather than 32 bits long, which, uh, means you can address a lot more memory. And I did a blog post about this where I talked about this. And I said, you know, if you didn't know better, you'd think it's twice as much memory because 32-bit to 64-bit. Uh, but it's not. It's it's several order, orders of magnitude more memory. In fact, I, I don't have the blog post in front of me, but the, the, num the amount of RAM that you can address with 64-bit is so big. The number is so big that you get into units of measurement you know, of numbers that most people have never heard of. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds like when you're a kid and you talk about a bazillion. Well, that's not a number, but there's there are numbers, quintillion and things like that, that are real numbers. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, yeah, it's a big number. And I went through the exercise to figure out, well, okay, of course you can't, you can't actually buy a computer that will house as much RAM as 64-bit can address. They don't make a computer like that. Uh, and if you could, at least at today's prices, uh, even with a decent discount, I think I calculated it cost you over $100 million to buy all that RAM. And, and I calculated that it would, you would need, if you could stack the RAM, you know, tightly, uh, you would need a building the size of your typical 10-story office building uh, to store all of that RAM. So we're really talking about a lot of RAM. In fact, you know, I think I, we, I think I'm safe, totally safe, in saying that at least in my lifetime, no one's ever going to have a computer with that much RAM in it. 
Um, there's the old joke about Bill Gates saying that no computer is ever going to need more than 640K of RAM. But he has actually said, just as a point of trivia, that he didn't actually ever say that. that, that got, that's been attributed to him, but that he didn't actually say it. Um, I'll have to you know, track that one down sometime. But you are saying no one is ever going to need more than 64-bit. In my lifetime. <laughs> in your lifetime. Yeah. Well, that's all you but, need, so, really, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in my lifetime, I, I think that, that that's the case. Now, if, if science delivers some miracle drug or something, you know, in the next, I don't know, 40 or 50 years that makes people live, you know, forever, uh, then I might be in trouble. I'll have to retract that statement. So I don't know. I mean, the numbers we're talking about here are large. I mean, it's not like when people said, you know, 32 bit, the numbers you talk about with 32 bit, you know, you can understand those numbers. But when you talk about the numbers for 64 bit, those aren't like you're saying, those aren't understandable. And those by and large become effectively, you know, that's unlimited. I, I I think I can safely say that the number of bytes you can address uh, with 64-bit is a number larger than 99.9% of our users have ever even considered. I mean, like, you know, beyond just infinity. Obviously, infinity, is that's not even a real number. So if you're talking about an actual number that if you had enough time you could count up to – I'm not even sure you could in your lifetime, you know, no matter how fast you counted, but, but it is a, it is an actual calculatable number. Uh, yeah. It's, it's that kind of ridiculous amount. You know? But, but stepping away from the ridiculous sizes, the, the more practical sizes that people need, you know, my computer here has 16 gigabytes of Ram. Well, now I can, oh, yeah. I can address it all if I need to. Uh, and you know, and that's, that's not becoming an uncommon, I mean, that, a few years ago, that was a lot of Ram, but nowadays that's starting to become more common. And yeah, I think my my laptop heck has twenty four gigs of RAM. I think right. that's before. Yeah, then uh, the new iMacs that just have come out, I think those max out at thirty two gigabytes of RAM, and uh, yeah. so you're going to start to see that uh, more and more. So yeah, the people have that RAM; they want to be able to use it for things, whether it's loading pictures or massaging data or or whatever they want. They have it; they want to be able to use it, and now they can. Yeah, and you know we have uh, a number of customers who. Uh, do um, picture manipulation applications of different types. And we've heard from them that they're running into this problem where they just, you know, can't open enough images because they're running out of RAM. So 64-bit is going to be really, really important to them. So what other benefit would you say 64-bit brings to the table? Well, I, I would say it's not so much the benefit as is the source, sort of how we're getting there. Um, you know, uh, so again, a little bit of background for people that may not know this. A compiler, you know, the c computers don't understand the programming language that you program in. I don't care what, which one you program in, they don't understand it. So a what a compiler does is it translates this, you know, English-like language, whatever it is, into machine language, you know, ultimately ones and zeros, binary, that the computer can understand. Um, and uh, so that's the, the job of the compiler. And compilers have a front end and a back end. And the front end basically takes your, you know, programming language and uh, translates it down to what I call sort of a meta assembly language, kind of like, like a cross-platform assembly language, one that isn't x86 or any other chip or ARM or any other chipset. It's just sort of a, you know, a, a meta language. And then the back end of the compiler takes that meta assembly language and translates it into the actual assembly language for the processor you're targeting, ARM for uh, Raspberry Pi and iOS, and x86 for everything else. Um, so that's how a compiler works. Well, So for the longest time, and we still to, to this day have a compiler that has those two pieces, a front end and a back end. Um, what we're doing is we're moving to a different back end. There's an open source project called LLVM, and uh, LLVM is, the, is a compiler backend, so it doesn't know anything about the Zojo language. We use our front end of our compiler to translate the Zojo language into LLVM's what's called intermediate representation. I've been referring to that as meta assembly language, but IR, intermediate representation. And then it takes that, and it can target way more backend processors than, than we support, but it fortunately supports all the ones we care about. Um, and at this point, that's x86 and ARM. Uh, 
but a side benefit of that is that another thing that compilers often do is they optimize your code. Now, again, for people that don't have a background in this, it doesn't mean that it, you're going to you know, compile your app and see your source code all change because it doesn't touch that. But it will make optimizations to your code um, at compile time. And, and that's, that's a huge thing. Um, users generally don't complain too much about Zojo code not being fast enough because it is still compiled to machine language and it always has been. But it, it traditionally up to this point has not been an optimizing compiler, and now it is with LLVM. Now, just to be specific, though, this is um, for 64-bit and for um, for 64 all 64-bit targets, and for Raspberry Pi, which is 32-bit uh, on ARM. So those are the those are the things you build for with R3 that'll where LLVM is involved. Um, if you're compiling a 32-bit app for the desktop or the, for the web, uh, then that's still using our old compiler and it is not optimized. But our goal in the long run will be to move everything over to LLVM. And uh, you don't, you know, you don't see this yourself. I mean, the UI hasn't changed or anything like that. But that's another benefit. Is and and the the applications that are going to benefit most from uh, 64-bit are applications that do a lot of math. You know, if you're, if you're just bringing up UI and stuff, you're not going to really see a difference. But if you're doing a lot of calculations, that's where you could see a, a significant performance benefit. Right, yeah. We've had some users in beta talking about double, triple. Uh, I think the highest I've seen reported is like seven times performance for heavy math stuff. So, yeah, you know, faster is always better. So that's, that's good news. Yeah. Now, um, there is a price to be paid. It's not all free. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when you're when you're compiling with LLVM and it's doing all those optimizations, in fact, we were talking recently about the fact that there are something like 500 different possible optimizations that it can do. Um, that takes time, and uh, so compiling a, a 64-bit app uh, does take longer. But but it, this is only when you're building. When you press run and you're testing your app that's still using 32-bit. So it's really only when you choose 64-bit and you hit build, it's, it's that, that that will take a bit longer than it does um, with the compiler that you're used to. Right, yeah. Hitting build might take a little longer than building a 32-bit version, but it's doing more work and you end wow. up with a, a more powerful app in general. Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing we have done for this is the builds are actually going to use all the cores on your on your computer. Something people have asked about for years is, hey, I've got my, you know, every computer these days is multi-core, but Zojo is only using one core even when it compiles. Well, not anymore with 64-bit. It's going to use up what cores you have to do its compiling. So That's right. So you could actually get faster comp compiling starting with R3 by just having a computer with more cores. In fact, I think we you did a test, right? We, we tested... Um, compiling the Eddie's Electronics iOS example with R2. Right, yeah, I did that with R2 yeah. and R3. Yeah, as well, a, R2 is one, could only use one core and did no optimizations, right? We yeah, R2 still used LLVM, of course, because it's for iOS. But that one, according to my numbers here, it came out at six, about 16 seconds to do the build, and the resulting uh, iOS app was 9.2 megabytes. And in R3, the build took about seven seconds, and the resulting file was 5.6 megabytes. So it was wow. faster and smaller, uh, which is always nice. And, of course, that's iOS, which has been out for a little bit. Uh, but that does use some of these newer optimizations and whatnot we've been uh, working on with LLVM. So always yeah, that's actually another part of uh, LLVM that we hadn't talked about yet is the fact that it does a pretty good job of dead code stripping. Right, That's why the application, I believe, is smaller is that it's stripping out stuff from the framework that uh, wasn't being used. So your iOS app pr prior to this was probably including a lot of stuff that your app may not have even needed, but LLVM is now stripping that stuff out. Yeah, I didn't dig to figure it out, but uh, that, that very well could be. Uh, yeah, but, I think that that's the case. So yeah, Smaller yeah. is better. So Yeah, <laughs> so comparing building 32-bit apps like desktop apps to 64-bit, yeah, it's going to take longer, no, no question about it, but... You don't build that often anyway, so that's not a big deal. But you are going to get uh, a um, an application that is um, uh, well, 64-bit, of course, but also optimized. 
So those are, are big benefits. And, and yeah, if you're, if you're used to compiling for iOS with R2, it's actually going to be faster. But the other thing is you now, you now actually have something you can do if you want faster build times. You actually have an action you can take. And that is you can get a, um, a computer with more cores. But even, even if you don't do that, the computer you have is being better utilized because of the way we've architected the compilation process to use all of the available cores. Yeah, which is always nice to see. I mean, all these multi-core computers everyone has these days spend most of their time with cores just sitting idle. So uh, yeah. now you can can use them. Uh, this there's also a little another little bonus on 64-bit that uh, when we announced or when Jeff announced at XDC 64-bit uh, regarding Linux, somewhat similar to Raspberry Pi, uh, we announced that we were going to have. Linux console apps for 64-bit for the first version. But also, right. also with this release, we can create desktop 64-bit apps for Linux. Uh, another thing uh, people just are going to love because one of the common questions we get asked tech support and on the forums is, how do I set up my 64-bit version of Linux with the 32-bit library so my Zojo apps will run? And it is a hassle and a half, no doubt about it. It depends on the distribution. And in fact, some uh, you, usually it's easier just to start with a 32-bit distribution and not worry about it. But newer Linux distributions often aren't even making 32-bit versions available anymore. That's right. So, so now you don't even got to worry about it. You just build your app as a 32-bit for your customers that need uh, are using a 32-bit version of Linux, or skip that if you don't have any, and <laughs> just build the 64-bit version and make that deployable, and that'll be just so much easier for people to get up and running. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, it's funny because I, I, I forget that we, you know, we our original promise was a, a much more limited set. You know, we weren't doing desktop for Raspberry Pi. We weren't doing uh, desktop for Linux. And, you know, that is part of the reason this cycle is taking a lot longer than we expected. You know, we, we didn't think those things would add that much time, but they actually have added a fair amount of time. But the good news is, is that, you know, now we're shipping and all this stuff's available. And you don't have to think, well, wait, can I, can I support the desktop? Which is it? No, it's all there. You don't have to think about it. It keeps the message really simple. Right. Is, and, and to give people a visual of what you have to do when you want to support 64-bit, you're essentially in Zojo. You're going to click on the build target there in the navigator in the build settings section. So you could uh, click on, say, Windows, for example. And then there's a new option that shows up in the inspector called Architecture. And it has a pop-up menu that'll say x86 32-bit or uh, x86 64-bit. And you just change that to 64-bit, hit the build button. And Zojo Chugs does its thing, and you get a 64-bit app that you can then do with what you want. And that's how it works for all of them. So like I, that was my, kind of my joke way at the beginning is just that all of this comes down to you picking an item from a pop-up menu. Now, there are a few other things you'll have to tweak, declares, plugins, stuff like that. We've got that outlined on our 64-bit doc that's included with your Zojo download and on the Dev Center. So you can read through that if there's any to see if there's any specific things for your projects you'll need to update. But a lot of projects, it's just going to be a click and a build really easy. Yeah. And, and because, you know, we know that there'll be people with some big projects, you know, compiling for 64 bit. Um, it's important to, to know that one of the things we did in, in changing how this works is uh, the compiler architecture is such now with 64 bit that it goes through and figures out all your compiler errors immediately. Uh, so that ha that part actually happens very quickly with 64-bit. So you don't have to wait through and then find out you got an error. It'll it'll find that right away. And in the but in the current UI, there's a progress bar, and that progress bar once it gets through that first section, it will stop. And you may think that something's locked up, but it hasn't. Just wait and and let it finish. Um, it'll go through that first half very quickly, and then it's going to look like it's just stopped, but it just it. What it is is the compiler can't provide at this point the feedback to let us know where it's at in the linking phase. That's what it'll say. It'll say linking, but it's really doing the optimization and all of that. It's more than just linking. So that's something that'll get better over time, but don't be surprised if that's the case. You know, the other thing we should mention is that um, this is a huge feature. I mean, we started off by saying that. It's taken, you know, many man years of work to get to this point, um, and it has huge implications. You know, you mentioned, you know, if you're using declares, you got to take a look at those. If you're using plugins, make sure a lot of the plugin vendors have updated plugins for 
for 64-bit. You got to make sure you got the right ones and all that. But it's such an enormous feature that um, we we want to see a lot more people use it before we really take off that beta uh, tag. So we're going it, to – it'll still be listed in the release notes as beta. Um, that's our way of telling you that – that you know, while for most of you, you're just going to build and it's going to work great. Probably 75% of your apps or 75% of you, it'll just work p- fine. Um, there's a handful of gotchas, and once those are resolved, then we'll we'll remove the the beta label. Uh, but until then, uh, we'll we'll call it beta. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, by all means, try out your projects using 64-bit. Uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised at the improvements and should you actually run into any difficulties by all means create a feedback case let us know so we can jump right on it and get that addressed yeah absolutely you know we, we did the same thing with uh when we redid the framework for the mac right in coco uh we called that beta for for a while because we wanted to make sure we you know felt comfortable that enough people were using it that we could say yeah we, we understand that it's a production level quality and and you know I, like i said i think for most of our users uh, the 64-bit feature is going to work perfectly the first time out of the gate. But uh, if you do run into problems, we want to know about them. And, and once we feel like it's been out there for a bit, you know, a few months at least, then we can feel more comfortable getting rid of the, the beta label. Right. So we've hit on just a high level of some of the new things that are available in Zojo 2015 Release 3. Overall, there are reading here from my notes, about 394, so almost 400 items on the release notes. It's 266 bug fixes. There are 53 things we categorize as changes, 22, 29 items that are considered new, including some of the stuff we've talked about today, and then uh, another 46 doc and example updates. I think the examples are well over 300 at this point that are included with Zojo. So there's a lot of other stuff that's in this release in addition to what we talked about today. So grab that download, spend, you know, uh, grab a cup of tea, sit down with the release notes, scan that, see uh, see all the stuff that's in there. Yeah, and you know, um, looking at that number, 266 bug fixes, just to put that into perspective, a typical release in the past had about 100 bug fixes. Yeah, typically so, we have about maybe 200 total items in a, right. in a release. right. So if you're thinking like 100 bug fixes in a typical release, and this is 266, that's a lot. But this has been a lot longer cycle as well. So uh, it's a big, R3 is a big release. It's a very big release. You know, we've got the container control. We've got um, web drag and drop, Raspberry Pi 64-bit, you know, optimized compiling, um, you know, a ton of bug fixes. It's It's just a really, really big release. And I think we got one more thing that we wanted to mention today. Yeah, that's right. So um, we're ready to to talk about XDC for next year for the Zojo Developer Conference for 2016. And uh, it's this time it's going to be in Houston, Texas. So that means that uh, it'll just be a drive down the freeway for me and for several of us. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's going to be in Houston. It's going to be October 5th through the 7th uh, next year. And October is a great month to be in Texas. Uh, we would never dream of scheduling one, say, in July or August. <laughs> uh, you, you, if you don't live here, you don't want to well, hack. Even those of us that live here don't want to be here during those months. It actually wasn't that bad this year. I've, I've lived in Texas for, gosh, 21 years. And, and uh, I, I guess maybe I'm used to it because I don't really mind the hot summers. But anyway, October is a great month in Texas. It'll be you know, probably in the low 80s, um, it'll be sunny. Uh, the weather will be really great. The hotel is called the Hotel Derek, and um, it's a small boutique hotel. Uh, one of the things we've found, just from experience, is small hotels work really well for us. Um, people that come to the conference, you know, they want to know they're going to run into each other in the lobby and going up and down the elevator and things like that. It's it's a lot of the socializing and networking that is a big factor in why people come. And we've used big hotels, let's see, I think twice. There was Vegas. Was that the only time? seems like we had another time where we used a big hotel. But anyway, uh, in the past, we found that when we use those really big hotels, that, that socializing doesn't happen nearly as much. 
you know. So, Paul, you remember when we did Vegas. I mean, it was like. Yeah, yeah, Vegas was rough. But uh, the last one in Austin was great. I mean, we pretty much owned the hotel for Zojo for three days. And uh, it's it's kind of nice. You know, you see everybody all the time. It's You get to know the place intimately. You know where everything is. It's it's a, it's a very comfortable, fun environment. Yeah, and, and Hotel Derek, uh, I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures. But it, it, room room-wise, it's about the same size as the Radisson, which was where we were at last time here in Austin. So having it in the fall will be a nice change of pace. We, we of course, get a lot of feedback on when we should do these things and where and that sort of thing. And we we got quite a few people that were like, you know, there's Ojo conferences always in the springish time. Fall might be an interesting change of pace. And uh, so now now we're in the fall. Yeah. And just so you guys know, you know, we really think about how to make the conference cost effective. There are plenty of cities where we could do the conference, like Chicago, New York, San Francisco, they're, they're just really expensive cities to have a conference. You know, hotels are expensive. Uh, there's all kinds of extra expenses. So we really look for places where we can do the conference in a interesting location that is cost effective so we can get, get as many people coming to the conference as possible. The Hotel Derek is downtown in Houston. Uh, there's like, I think Dana told me there's something like 500 restaurants within walking distance of Hotel Derek. Just to give you an idea, it's very close to the Galleria. And it's um, Houston has two airports, and it's right in between both airports. So when you're looking for airfare to fly into Houston, look at both airports because they're, they're about equidistant to the hotel. So that because of the competition of having two airports, that means that flying into that part of Houston is actually – uh, less expensive than you'd, you'd think. And, you know, it's reasonable to get there from Europe. It's obviously in the center of the country. So anywhere in the United States, it's, you know, easy to get to. So it, it should be fun. We love XTC. It's a, it's a huge amount of work to do it, but we really enjoy uh, the, the days where we get to, you know, uh, interact with, with Zojo users face-to-face. All right. Well, I think we've covered everything today. I want to thank my special guest, Jeff Perlman. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Thanks, Paul. Next time on Zojo Talk, I'm going to be talking with Jeff a little bit more, and we're going to be talking about OS X El Capitan, iOS 9, and Windows 10. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Have a great day.